Coming up this week on Destination Linux, we're transitioning from the topic of bug reporting that we covered last week and moving into tech support. Yes, there's a difference between them, and we're going to get into that this week. We're going to check in on Wayland's progress with Plasma's new release. We have a new sandbox MMO for gaming. Well, it's not new, but it might be new to some of you. And our popular tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this and much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Music and overlay, and animations. And Look, it's a penguin. I want to travel to it. it. Going so down the road and back again. That's a Golden Girls reference. Welcome to episode number 185. You're tuned into the number one video-centric Linux podcast on the planet. In fact, in the universe, some say. Destination Linux is your source for great discussions on Linux and open source. My name is Ryan, and with me today are the inspiration for Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore, Noah and Michael. Let's find out what everyone's been up to this week. Noah, what's been new with you, sir? Well, T-Swizzle and I uh, have been discussing her migration from Mac over to Linux. It's going very, very well. Perfect. I have her on Kubuntu 20.04. She says it's working absolutely fantastic. And she said that her and Windows are never getting back together. So That's amazing. Another breakup Mm -hmm. album. That's what the whole album was about. (laughs) So what have you really been doing, though? I uh, no. In in all seriousness, I actually I I got involved in a really cool project. Um, I, it was supposed to be a four hour project on Friday, or ended up being like a three day project. But, uh, no, it's really cool. So, um, one of the new things that people uh, offices are going to obviously is automated. I shouldn't say automated, but remote receptionists. And so somebody to take care of the office, but that person not be sitting in the office because of course, COVID epidemic, all those kinds of things. They want to limit the amount of people that are outdoors. So, or uh, coming into the building and they want to keep as many of them outdoors as as much as possible. And so what we've done is we've kind of put together uh, a a system based uh, from off of uh, hardware platforms from a number of different companies. So we've taken um, the access cameras, combined them with the Synology NVR, and then we're using a device called an Elgo, A-L-G-O, SIP door phone system. And so the way that it works is person comes up, they push a button on the, on a little panel and that web-based door phone dials an internal SIP extension, or of course a hunt group. The user picks up the phone, says, hello, looks at the Synology NVR to see who's outside the door. And that person says, Hey, I'm here because I want to drop off a check. And then they can take their phone and they can press the six key and it unlocks the, it sends a, a command to the door system and unlocks the door. And that person can come in drop a check off, whatever, and then exit the building. And the, the, the receptionist can do that all without ever having contact with the person. On the other hand, if the person comes up and says, hey, uh, can I come in? She pulls up the camera and sees a guy stand there too easy. She just calls 911 instead. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's been really fun to watch those systems kind of come alive. Turns out when you go to do that in a radio station, um, they put firewalls every 10 feet and the, they have these like concrete walls that go all the way up to the ceiling for noise prevention and all that. And so uh, getting cable from one end of the building to the other end of the building should take an hour. Instead, takes three days. So that's not so much wow. fun. Um, but yeah, as far as watching people start to think digitally and, and start to organize their life and, and organize their workflows around how to do things from behind a computer, and what we're finding is, a, you know, think about it. SIP 
uh, and 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 asterisks so, uh, essentially define the way that we use phone systems today. Those are open standards. That's we have open source to thank for that. The ONVIF standard and the and the way that that cameras, IP cameras, all now are able to communicate with a bunch of different NVRs, even though the camera may not be made by an open source company. Maybe the Synology is not made by an open source company. The fact that they're all following these open standards means that we don't have vendor lock in, and that truly, uh, op- you know, open source choice and and standing on your own technical merits rather than vendor lock in is starting to become an industry standard. So I is. It's just been really fun to see how that plays out in practice and how people can reap the benefits of that and utilize that to leverage their business. Yeah, I think it's been amazing when you look at the impact, and this doesn't undermine the impact to millions of people that COVID and things out there has had, but it is interesting to see the innovative ways people have tried to find solutions to the issues that it's caused. Like we had restaurants in our local area that were, instead of being able to serve people, they were basically because there was grocery shortages selling the food that was coming into their restaurants to the public. So the chicken, the steaks, the things like that to get um, money generated and money moved in. And some of them have stayed with that model since COVID has come in because it ended up being fruitful for them. Some of them haven't, but it is interesting to see the way people are leveraging technology as well to show how you can still, in some cases, run a business at least um, semi-effectively compared to before pre-COVID. So with that, Michael, what have you been up to? So I've been doing some hardware improvements and trying to upgrade my equipment because I, I need it because I typically take uh, years to About upgrade. About 20 years. Yeah, Every pretty 20 much. years. Yeah. So in this case, I decided to upgrade my microphone and my camera. And you will notice that neither have been changed yet. And that's because certain things uh, I didn't prepare for and getting the correct cables involved in using those things. So I'm still missing a few pieces in order to actually implement those, but they are coming soon and I hope to have it next week. You'll be able to see a big difference in that stuff. But I am super excited because I actually have hardware that is new, which is almost impossible, well, new to me, that is almost impossible and I'm kind of excited that I actually have some stuff to play with and also to you know, to point out how Ryan's camera will be inferior to mine, which is super I know, exciting. You had to me. go and get the 6100, and I have the 5100. He had to one-up me, Noah. Which oh, yeah. humanity. Yeah. Man, That's how right. dare he? That's right. How will you ever live? Your YouTube I don't know. It really doomed. upset me. As soon as I tell I, my I wife, I'll it. be able to go spend yeah. more money in hey, yeah, don't worry. his camera. You should be just upset. Tell your, you just be. tell your wife this. At least okay. at the end of the day, you're looking better because you're sitting in a normal chair. Great. I don't have to sit in a stool. That's I'm not right. in the like, stool right like now. Like a fool. <laughs> you're sitting in the stool right now. I'm looking at you. No, yeah. it's not. That's looks like you're in a stool. It looks like a stool. Not not even slightly. It's but a any- stool air, a stool chair. Anyway, so Ryan, what have you been up to this week? So this week I dropped another video on the Intel Nook. And in this one was patron requested because people were having trouble getting the Thunderbolt to work properly with the eGPU out there. So I did a whole tutorial on what you need to do in your BIOS to so you can boot with Thunderbolt, boot with your all your monitors connected into your eGPU utilizing Linux. And in this one, we're running Pop! OS. And I've got to tell you, we've talked about our love for KDE and all of this stuff for a long time, and that doesn't change. But I really love what Pop! OS, if I haven't said it before, has done with GNOME. And I find that the extensions that they're including make it a usable desktop out of the box versus kind of your vanilla GNOME where 
if you don't have those extensions, at least for my workflow, it's pretty unusable. But the way Pop! OS has things set up and along with their tiling, I actually really enjoy it. It's really fitting well with my workflow and I'm using it on the System76 laptop I have. I'm using it on the Nook and I'm enjoying the entire process. It's been pretty eye-opening and awesome to see just little things like Pop! Shell, their tiling manager, can do to enhance a desktop experience to the point where it goes from something with my workflow I consider to be almost like a workstation feeling desktop, vanilla GNOME, to something that I feel is a creative desktop experience with what Pop! OS has done, which has really impressed me. Yeah, I think that Pop! OS so, is the best example of what GNOME could be. And, um, and it's still not Plasma, so obviously it's still not what I want to use. But at the same time, it is the much improved GNOME. Yeah. So l- let me ask you this, Ryan. Um, I go purchase, let's say, the Razer Core, okay? Uh-huh. The e- eGPU dock, and I, I get it home. And I take my laptop that has Ubuntu Linux and uh, Thunderbolt dock, and I, 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 pl- I plug all the cables together. How hard is it to actually get the laptop to run off of the car? Does it show up as like a PCI device just like it would if it was a desktop, or is there some tinkering? It's that a little bit difficult, and a lot of it was I, don't ha- I didn't have a ton of experience with eGPUs, but I found it to be interesting because there are multiple places, at least in the Intel Nooks BIOS, in which you have to enable the Thunderbolt controller, then you have to enable mm. the Thunderbolt security level to like unique ID, something mm-hmm. other than legacy, obviously, so that you can use it as a GPU. Then you have to enable things like Thunderbolt booting and other options in there so that when you actually turn on your computer, you get the post screen and all of those things. So there's a lot of work that has to be done in the BIOS. Then when you get into the operating system itself, you've got some more problems that uh, come up. For instance, if you install, once you install the NVIDIA drivers, you're going to get that famous screen where you can't get GNOME Display Manager to launch because it doesn't know if it's using the internal AMD GPU in this case, because you can turn off the Intel GPU, but the Nook has an AMD GPU and the Intel. So -hmm. you can turn off one, but you can't turn off the other. So it doesn't know which one to switch to. So you basically get stuck not being able to log in. So then you have to go get an eGPU switcher tool to basically tell it that that's what you want to use. And this is a very unfortunate state, in my opinion, for Linux that it's this difficult. Thanks. I'm sorry I asked. But I have a video on it. (laughs) That's good. I'm sorry. Really? I mean, honestly, though, so EGP, you know, the thing that is, I guess, a little bit frustrating and disappointing to me is EGP has been out, what, two years, three years? Longer than that, yeah. But I mean, how long does it take to get this right? Apparently a long time, but... You know, I, I guess it just depends on which people decide they want to work on it because it's not something that you really see. This is kind of the complaint I've had for a long time. A lot of the bigger distros focusing on this because it's more of a desktop solution, mm-hmm. right? You're not mm-hmm. seeing this on something usually you're going to see in a commercial or business application. So I don't think unless the community themselves go out there and do it, anybody even cares or looks at it. So yeah, thank, thank goodness for the community, but I wish some of the bigger companies that represent Linux would actually focus on the desktop some more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's there's also even topics about like, you know, sometimes we get these updates and some like, hey, we have new improvements because this one individual got a laptop that requires them to fix it. It's like, why, why is that still a mechanism that we deal with? But that's a yeah. probably a bigger topic for another. Indeed. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by one of my favorite companies on the planet, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. What does that mean? It means even if you've never set up a cloud before, you've just heard it as a buzzword, 
You're going to log into DigitalOcean. You're going to use our free $100 credit to do so, so you can get to play around, drop different servers, play with different droplets. You're going to go in and you're going to see an intuitive interface. So you're going to know exactly how to go and create a new droplet. Then it's going to give you an option for a one-click install. So let's say you want to set up a WordPress site. You want to get a Minecraft server set up. All of that is in the marketplace. You can click one-click install. If you're doing something fancier that they don't have a one-click install for, guess what you can do? You can use one of their 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials out there to help you get started. And literally, you can just go. They're so well-written, step-by-step, cut and paste the various commands in there. You're going to have a server up. It's also going to, and a lot of those articles link you directly to how do you secure that server once you're done. So it's a complete solution package that you should be using. You're going to get all of this plus access to the world-class customer support for as little as $5 per month. That is less than a value meal. $5 per month, you can have a droplet going, but that's not all. Because you're part of Destination Linux, because you're listening to this show, you can get started with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And you can use that to spin up a dozen droplets or even a monster-sized droplet so you can see all the things that you can do out there in the cloud. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux and the entire Destination Linux network. In this week's community feedback, Steve writes us to say, Good day, gentlemen. I enjoy the show and appreciate your opinions and insights on all things Linux. I learn something useful with every show. I'm nearing the point of needing more disk space. I'd like your opinions on the criteria of deciding when to get larger disks or move to a file server or other options. Before you run out. (laughs) There are two of us in the household with several laptops, tablets, and phones, mostly Apple hardware with several running Linux. Any help is welcome. Best wishes, Steven. So a couple things on this. Number one, you need to subscribe to Hardware Addicts because we cover all kinds of awesome topics like this in that podcast. Um, there's an interesting thing. I generally go by the 75% rule myself. When your drive is about 75% full, it's time to look at a getting and expanding your hard drive out there. You're going to start noticing performance issues and things like that. Um, this kind of got mitigated though, as what most drive manufacturer companies are doing now is what they call over-provisioning, where they're actually setting aside space on your drive for you to stop the drives from getting to the noticeable failure rates and performance issues that happen when you fill up a drive. So depending on your drive, they may have it over-provisioned, which would protect you from that. But I don't really trust that fully. So 75% is my kind of go-to rule. Noah, I don't know if you have a different opinion on that. I I don't. I I guess the way that we typically answer that question when people ask is, uh, you know, if we're looking at managing space and and we're we're concerned about how much much we're going to let them fill, it's usually on a FreeNAS box. To that extent, we go by when FreeNAS generates a warning and says, hey, I'm a little too full, which I think happens at 85%. Then they uh, then it generates a warning, and then we tell them, "Hey, uh, you you should upgrade your drives." I, I worry about the drive failing more than I worry about the drive filling up. In my experience, people don't usually, um, unless you're uh, unless you running something where you know you have high data ingest, like you're doing video editing, something like that. For the most part, uh, people, in my experience, they they don't go from having one terabyte of data to ten. But what they do have is one terabyte of data that they have to keep for, for, for over five years. And those NVMe drives do tend to fail sooner than five years or at least start to have some issues. Um, and so you can cycle them before then. I would agree with you as far as where your line is not before you start worrying about upgrading storage capacity. Frankly, I think 
by the time I got to the point where I was asking myself, I, I need more space on this computer, I would probably start looking at a NAS unless you just have to have all your data right. with you all the time. I agree. And Michael, you have actually consistently run out of space. And uh, every every week show, of this entire show, actually, week, I was I was going to argue like I don't just I don't agree with Ryan's per- percentage structure because I, I've proven that you can go to 97 percent and it's still fine <laughs> week after week. <laughs> yeah, every X-Force time. Fantastic. So Butter well, so, didn't work out well, though. Well, well, thankfully, you took my hard drive suggestions of what you purchased. So you actually have over-provisioned drives that are protecting you from. Oh, data I was going to ask you if I did. But... So there you go. Well, I have to ask, what one did you what What did you order for him, or what did you suggest, Ryan? I think he went with the Samsung Pro line. I got I got okay. Samsung Pro Good. and also uh, Crucial MX something something like yeah, that. Yeah, Samsung Pro. That's the that's yeah. where it's at, buddy. Yeah, but we, I, we I also a, have that. Yeah, we did a very unscientific very esoteric uh we took the samsung at the time it was the eight i think 40 pro and put it against one of those intel like enterprise drives that were specifically designed for servers mm-hmm. and what we found was that the samsung 840 ran just as long as the intel did so it doesn't have any of the guarantees doesn't have uh you know any of the backing behind it but the truth is they are the best solid state drives out there i think the 860 is the current they they make very good drives very trustworthy there are other great brands though out there i will tell you and if you're in your case noah where you have to have as much reliability as possible i think you're in the right direction but uh for others consumers out there and things like sabrent makes some amazing yeah and things like that out there so you know i wouldn't say stay away from other companies but i would make sure that the you've there's enough reviews from trusted people out there before you just go get something generic. I do remember a time when Michael came on the show and showed like he'd bought 18 drives for $5 or something. And I'm like, please, Michael. Please it was okay. Okay. Just You're exaggerating. They always exaggerate. Everybody listening. They're always exaggerating. I never exaggerate. It's, it's, right. It never happens. It was, uh, but I would like to point out that during the intro to this, the show, uh, this is a very good, important note that while Noah was talking about his experience with some issues with like the remote setup and everything, I uh, I was deleting files or moving files from one drive to another so I could get more space. <laughs> so now I have space and we will not run out recording time. So it's all good. Hopefully. Until <laughs> next week. Yeah. So thank, Steven- you very, thank you very much for, for, for getting to that so quickly. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> right during the recording. Yep, yep prepared. Right during the recording. Everything's prepared. Advanced. So Steven, look at that. You can just... Uh, Real uh, work on your hard drive space while you're running out of space, as well, Michael does. Or you could follow <laughs> Noah and I's suggestion and about the 75% mark, start taking a look at uh, getting some hard, new hard drives out there, especially if you do any gaming and things, because um, one of the reasons why a lot of consumers run out of space is gaming, not just video rendering, because some games are 40 to 60 gigabytes by themselves. So you think, I'm just going to install this game. If you're not paying attention, you got 60 gigabytes of your space just eaten up from one video game. So that's when I would take a look at it. But thank you again for writing us and asking the question. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also want to point out, I do have a NAS now and I am using the NAS. That's where the data went while I was doing. It's just, you know, when you do get one of those, it's best to. I hear excuses. No, it's, it's best you, to actually use them. I'm just that this is a good tip. You I know, hear you, a child learning his lesson. This is good. <laughs> hey, Noah, if people want to yell at Michael for his uh, disregard for proper hardware handling, how would they reach us? Ooh, they would reach us at commonsdestinationlinux.org. Now, if you make your feedback concise to the point, technologically relevant, and get a dig in at Michael, there's a high probability that it'll make it into the show. Nice. Yes. 
Plasma 5.20 is gearing up to be an impressive release, but one thing in particular that caught our attention was Wayland support. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, essentially back when the back when the Linux operating system came into existence, it wasn't really designed for graphical use. We were doing everything on the command line. And over time, uh, graphics were built for the Linux desktop, and it was done in a very interesting way. That is to say that we had X server and X and an X client, and both usually ran on your computer, but it allowed us to do some very interesting things, and that was that you could disconnect the X server from the X client and allow a remote X uh, client to connect in, and, and so it opened up all, it opened up to Pandora's box to all sorts of different ways to uh, do screen capturing and screen recording, many of which are still used today, uh, even in OBS. Well, that all changed a few years ago as Linux decided that it needed a ground up work on the display server. And there were a couple different competing technologies. Wayland went out at the end and the Plasma team has been focusing on Wayland and one hurdle that comes with Wayland and that is screen recording and screen casting. This is the idea of capturing the screen uh, using the Wayland backend. Now, one of the things that is interesting about Wayland is that it and Michael, help me with this. Is it Wayland doesn't have its own compositor, so it has to Correct. have a it has to have a second compositor. What was a really interesting thing in the uh, in the in the in the Linux community was at the time one of the competing technologies was Mir, and when Mir was was cast aside in favor of Wayland, uh, the Mir team said, "Well, we have all this good work." And the great thing about Mir and one of the technical advantages of it was it did include its own compositor. So here's what we'll do: we'll just make Mir a compositor for Wayland. And so that project is continuing and fulfilling a, a function that Wayland itself uh, didn't have. Well, so where we're at today and, and why Plasma 5.20 is so interesting and why we're all waiting for it to ship bated breath is they are going to fix the ability to do things like OBS screen recording, uh, which has been kind of a pain up until oh, yeah. now. So we're really excited to see that some other improvements, middle click paste now works in Wayland. Again, you have to understand um, we are trying to backward, make backwards compatible uh, Wayland with all of these applications that were originally designed and tested and ran on X. That's uh, one of those things window. that we should not include. Middle click paste is awful. Continue. Well, it is, but it, but the fact that, that that one more thing is fixed is not awful, right? I mean, I guess. Window now appears in the right place when using the That's top panel good. on Wayland. Um, and the last used keyboard layout is now remembered on Wayland. So a lot That's of little important. paper cuts, a lot of little things, uh, a lot of little paper cuts have now been fixed. Um, over time, what we would eventually like to see is obviously two desktop support. That's something that has been a problem under Wayland so far. It's been work being worked on by a number of different companies to include places like TeamViewer and, and Simple Help and, 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 and the like. We'll, we'll wait to see exactly how all of this shakes out and how all of it works, but it, it certainly appears that we're headed in a very bright direction um, with Wayland that's going to provide a more stable environment and we're not going to give up features, which up until this point has been a real concern. Yeah, it's interesting. I was playing with Fedora a few weeks back and it defaults into the Wayland session with GNOME and I didn't even remember that it did that. I was just using my machine like normal, enjoying everything, opening up my docs, doing some surfing, writing some documents, doing all the stuff I normally do. And then I went to do a screen recording because I found something. I was like, oh, that would make a cool video. And I was like, it's not working. It's only capturing like a top bar of my screen or something was just finicky on it. And that's the moment I was like, oh, I'm in Wayland. So from a user experience, when we do get to the point where Wayland is complete, you're not even going to really know you're in Wayland and that would be the goal. 
Uh, and with things like OBS getting fixed, this is a big part of that. The other thing that lets me notice or know that I'm in Wayland is usually when I'm gaming, for some reason, gaming seems to be really impacted with Wayland or tends to be much, much slower. I don't know if that's been resolved since then, but those are the type of issues that you would have before. But really, it's the screen capturing that always kept me or made me have to leave and go back into the normal X session. Uh, but with these fixes, it looks like KDE is long on its way to getting Wayland to the point where you could have that same experience I had and not remember, oh, hey, I'm in Wayland. You would just be in Wayland. Yeah. One thing I one thing I, I feel necessary to point out is while this is very exciting and while I'm personally very happy uh, to see this progress, I think one thing we just have to point out is we are in 2020 and we're excited that we can finally capture the screen on our desktop environment. Well, I mean, from the Wayland future version. Okay, it's a funny okay way of but I'm just it, saying. But I'm just fair. saying from the guy from the guy that's walking around the street. Yeah, this yeah. is the news in the Linux world: is that we can yeah. finally capture that. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, if we needed to redo the display server, so be it. If it was too old and it was shoehorned in, I get it. I'm cool with it. I understand. I'm down. Let's do it. But let's just understand: like, we have to start getting this stuff right, and we have to start making some forward progress. No, I agree with that. And also, I am, I'm happy that OBS is now supporting Wayland. One of the main reasons that I, well, I mean, it's because of the what the stuff they've done in the back end. But the, the, the reason I don't even bother to try Wayland for, well, more than five minutes is because I use OBS every day, all the time. So I need to have... I need to have OBS support. So this is actually a really important to me to be able to use it in a more longer term. So I'm ex super excited about that. And uh, as far as like, I, I wanted to do like a little quick note. Uh, Mirror is not used in this particular instance that I know of because K right, right. Kwin has its own uh, compositing. Compositor. Uh, but also that I really love the fact that Mirror did what they did where they switched into being a compositor for Wayland because it allows it for people who can't sustain creating their own compositor to be able to use something at a separate project to be able Stop. to implement it. Yeah. To actually have that back end. And uh, that's one of the things that I don't like about Wayland, like significantly don't like about Wayland is that it doesn't come with a compositor. It has this reference compositor called Weston and people might in the comments might like, you know, think about that as being what they offer, but that is just to be like a bare bones example for compositing, but they don't really want you to use it. And I think that that's a, one of the reasons that holds back, Wayland's ability to be actually used is because it's just a protocol that people have to compensate for. And because of the way that Linux and open source works, people want to compensate for those things in different ways and creates a fragmentation. So we kind of have a fragmentation issue with something that shouldn't have any fragmentation whatsoever. So I thought the big issue holding Wayland back, frankly, one of the major ones is NVIDIA. Their proprietary driver APIs do not work in the Wayland interface. So I've always assumed, that's what I've always heard, that NVIDIA was one of the big reasons why Wayland's not taken off. So that's part, that it is one of the reasons, yes, but also one of the reasons is because in order to get that work, you have to work with a compositor. The, the fact that AMD is built into the kernel and built into the Mesa drivers, they kind of automatically are compensating for that piece. So that's why I think Wayland has this issue. But I think that there is multiple different factors. I, I just I just feel like that that's break point of fragmentation on something that is very important, like low level thing is not an ideal thing to have. Well, the good news is Wayland is being worked on still. I think if anybody's going to bring it 
fast into the mainstream where it works really well and we can experience what Wayland's all about. It's going to be KDE. So I'm pretty excited to see. Oh, yeah. I'm super excited about Plasma that. Plasma 5.20 shows up. Yeah, for sure. And I'm definitely going to be trying uh, OBS and Wayland now. Our security advisory this week is brought to you by Bitwarden. So we're going to talk about alternatives to Google in the t- sense of these search engines. So we're going to, one of the things that I want to talk about is my favorite, which is DuckDuckGo, heavily privacy focused. So for example, with DuckDuckGo, they're not selling your search history to other companies. And that's really main thing about Google's awful. Uh, but one of the things I love about DuckDuckGo is this, the, the, they have this bang system. So if you're not familiar with the bang system, it is a, you go to duckduckgo.com slash bangs and you can get a list and a directory of all the different bangs they have. And by bang, it's the exclamation point because exclamation point is a, also for some reason referred to as bang. I have no idea why, but it is in a lot of different like programming and technological spaces, but they use this term to be an exclamation point and then a keyword or a, a couple letters or so to be easily searching through different things. So for example, let's say you wanted to use DuckDuckGo and maybe the results aren't exactly what you want and you're like, well, I guess I, got, I, just, I just have to use Google at this point or whatever. And you instead of actually doing your whole research again and going to google.com and doing the search, you can just type, go to the beginning of your search box in DuckDuckGo, type in the exclamation point, the letter G, space, hit enter, and it will take the same thing and send it to Google. Now, That's not necessarily great for every aspect, but there are other things that it can do. Actually, there's hundreds of different things that the bang system can do. So you can do, for example, I I assume Ryan would love this one. You do bang and then AW and it will search the Arch Wiki. I mean, how could you not love DuckDuckGo from that standpoint alone? But I think the important thing is I see a lot of people in our community using Google don't use Google search engine, utilize something like DuckDuckGo. And what I tell people is you got to follow the money trail because there are a lot of alternatives out there besides DuckDuckGo. So how do they make money? Why are they doing this? Well, I followed the money trail with DuckDuckGo and here's how they make money. When you search for something like toaster, they will display ads of a toaster. It's not personalized to you. It's just personalized to a search topic that you put in. They make money off of those ads. This is a fair deal. If Google did it this way, I would be totally happy. But what happens with other search engines is they actually try to predict and build information and put an advertiser ID and then fingerprint you and then follow you to all the other sites that you go to and then collect all that data and sell it to somebody else who's going to sell ads that has all this information on you. That's the difference. I am totally fine with ads. I put in a search for a keyboard. You show me ads for keyboards. Then when I'm done, I close my browser transaction over. We're done with each other. That's how DuckDuckGo does it. That's why it's my personal favorite search engine, but there are other alternatives out there if you're not a fan. Yeah, um, it's what, it's my personal favorite too. And also another thing that's a personal favorite of mine is Bitwarden because I am a huge fan of Bitwarden. It's, the, it's a great password manager. It's actually the password manager that I use and trust. And the Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data and you can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. So password managers are a great way to have balance and convenience in using online accounts. So what do I mean by the balance of this thing? So security is very important and security has this, you know, like 
the internet these days, we have everybody asking us to create accounts and we got to create passwords for every single account. And that's actually the best practice to do because it makes sure that if you one account is compromised, you're not automatically compromised for every other account. So it is very important to have a different password for each website. But how do you keep track of that? And also, how do you create those passwords? The convenience factor here with Bitwarden offers is the password generator to automatically create those passwords and the also the value of automatically you know, keeping track of those passwords in the password manager vault. So you have the, the great balance of being able to have all of your stuff stored in one place, but also having the security of making sure that you know that your, your stuff is protected. And how do you know that? Well, you can actually look at the source code for Bitwarden. And that's another reason why I trust Bitwarden. I'm such a huge fan of it is because it's 100% open source. And you can even self-host it if you want to. And in fact, they, they are so confident about this, their software is that they do security audits. They hire other, they hire security firms to do it like Cure 53 and they audit the software and make sure that it's good for security, which is another amazing thing about Bitwarden. So if you're interested about checking out Bitwarden, you should go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get the best password manager available. And you can do this for free by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. You can get a free account or you can get one of their premium accounts. And their premium account is actually ridiculously inexpensive, which is awesome. You can pay only $10 per year and you get a bunch of extra features on top of all the awesome features I've already talked about. And so you should make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Or if you're like me, you could pro- you'll probably just want to do it just to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition because it's only $10 a year anyway. So I, I think that it's awesome. Uh, they, they, it's awesome to have the option for free. But for me, $10 a year, I, I just want to show them my appreciation anyway. So thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux and the Destination Linux Network. So we know when we hit on a good topic, when the community lights up and we see it in Telegram and Discourse and everywhere where people start talking and throwing suggestions. I even got messages sent to me on Mastodon and Twitter about the topic we covered last week, which was bug reporting. So a lot of people feel very passionate about this issue. We heard from developers, we heard from users, all kinds of good ideas out there. And we also discussed this even more in the after show, in our patron show. So make sure if you're not a patron, to check that out because you get to hear a bunch of the show that you miss if you're not. But this week, I wanted to tackle something. Really, this was your idea, Michael, because you've done applications and released them out there into the world. And there's a difference between these two items, bug, bug reporting and then tech support. And I know this is something that's really you're passionate about, Noah, is the tech support, number one, trying to find it with a lot of distributions. And being able, and you're wanting to pay for it, by the way, it's not just something you're wanting for free, but it's very hard sometimes to find with these distros where you actually go to sign up to get this support if they even have an option out there. One of our patrons, Jacob, gave this feedback from last week, which I kind of want to use to get into this segment. And it states that I used to work in support for a large hardware manufacturer. We would get hundreds of support tickets per day but only about once per month would they actually end up being escalated all the way to the developers as a bug. This is the opposite of how it works with open source, where every little unexpected behavior is treated as a bug and is sent to the developer, or at least to an issue tracker that developers are monitoring. This leads to developers doing entry-level support, which requires a completely different skill than what is required to be a good developer. Conversely, This leads to end users who are just trying to get help solving a specific problem on their PC, 
now doing technical troubleshooting on a piece of software that they likely have no particular interest in. It just happens to be the PDF viewer or file manager chosen by the distro developers. So I think what Jacob said here is really important because we didn't really talk about the fact that developers who are getting these bug reports are expected to, and they're getting every little minor thing that's happening. And even if it's an application outside of their control, it's just something like Jacob said, a PDF viewer that they happen to choose to include in their distro, and now they're expected to support it. So this does create a problem. And it's kind of why we're in this topic here of tech support, because there's a big difference between bug reporting and tech support. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know about you, Michael, but a lot of the feedback I received is people want this app that we talked about. In fact, they're starting to ask yeah. me to write it. And I'm like, look, uh, you don't want my Python. I mean, code he, yeah, he's there, a lead uh, Python developer, report. but I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I could do it, but, you know, it costs millions with my skill set. But in any case, uh, it is interesting that a lot of people see this as an issue, but there are two sides to the story. I think Jacob represented the other side really well here. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there's a lot like that. Not all issues are bugs for sure. And I think that's an important thing that we needed to, we, we kind of didn't address and that's why I wanted to cover it in this particular uh, segment. So this, this week we wanted to talk about the fact that tech support is a very important thing, but also it's kind of complicated how to do it. So it's not necessarily that open source is automatically the opposite of what it should be or whatever. It's just, it's kind of difficult to find where we're supposed to do the tech support because there's so many different options. I mean, there's like chat rooms, like IRC, Matrix, Telegram, Discord. There's also forums for different projects or there's there's also issue trackers on GitHub or GitLab or whatever, or even things like Ask Ubuntu where they're like Q&A systems. And in terms of like getting something specifically imp uh, improved or fixed on a particular basis, it's very difficult difficult to know where to go because of all these different options. It is something we have to kind of, you know, maybe figure out a way as a community to solve this problem and, you know, present it to different developers and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't really know Most what the, the tech support is, I see from you know, distros is really just, Hey, go into this chat room and ask your question. If there happens to be an available community member that knows about that issue, they may try to solve it for you. I, I think what we're kind of talking about is what about the professional application of it? Yes. Or the fact that there's just so many options. Some will send you to IRC, some to Matrix, some to Telegram, some to Discord, kind of all over the place. For it's that. a combination of both, really. There, there's so many options, but also there's not a single... Like the whole bug reporting system, maybe there should be the same thing we're applying to, like this universal bug report thing, have a universal tech support thing as well, because there's there's a potential of when you know when you go to your main menu, like we talked about last week, and search for getting help... The only option you will ever find is, well, not ever, but the only option typically you'll find is this, you know, the, when you hit F1, you get this big giant document application for help. And it's usually just too many things all at once. And they're not specific enough. And there's no way to really dive deep because if you don't know what the terminology means, there's really no way to figure it out because it's not like you can search like, you know, basic sentences. Just use the Arch Wiki and be fine. Yeah, there, there you go. Tech support solved. Hey, what's We're the problem? Episode all, complete. There in Arch Wiki. <laughs> you know, I, I think to a certain degree, it, it the part of the issue is I think just setting expectations. One of the things I've noticed just in my day job is when you set expectations very, very low, people tend to be very, very grateful when you deliver above or beyond those expectations because they're aware that you're doing something above and beyond and that you're going out of your way to help them. I think the part of the problem is because we don't have the money 
that proprietary regular commercial enterprises have when they do their software. Essentially, the marketing pitch com coming to users is, hey, come over and use Inkscape instead of Adobe Design because it does all the same things and has all the same tools. And you come over and, and you spend the first five minutes and you look and go, well, golly gee, it is a vector graphics editor. All those same things I was doing in, in Illustrator, I can, I can do right here in Inkscape. This is fantastic. Wait, how do I do this? How do I do this? Let me call Adobe. Oh, I can't. Well, how do I get support? Inkscape.com. I click on, and I'm just picking on Inkscape. I'm sure their support community is wonderful. I'm just using them as, as an example. But they click on the thing. They go, go into the IRC and ask your question there. Okay. Fire up an IRC client. Spend 45 minutes. I figure that out. I get connected. All right. There. Here's my question. I need blah, 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 blah. By the way, I have a deadline in an hour and a half. Well, it was an hour and a half, but now I spend 45 minutes setting up this IRC. Now I need an answer in, 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 in 100, you know, I need an answer in just about an hour. And the other guy at the other end is going, uh, I don't know who dropped and made you king, but like, we're busy. We have work. I do this in my spare time. I'm here on Friday. Sometimes I, I, I do some stuff. I don't have time to help you fix your, your, your graphics document right the second. Uh, you'll have to, you know what I mean? And so the expectation from the user is I want the software. I expect it to, to work. If it doesn't work, I expect to go to a place and have some sort of support infrastructure in place so I can have my question answered because I don't, I'm not an Inkscape expert or insert your name of the software. And I feel like on the other end of the, the software, these developers have given up of their time and their and their money and they've given up time with their families to bring this software available. And all they ever see, because nobody shows by and says, hey, just wanted you to know, had to do this thing with the graphics thing, downloaded your software, worked flawlessly. Great job, guys. That comment doesn't come very often, right? But the mm -hmm. comment of, hey, I have to get this done right now and this thing is not working, that comes all the time. So I think we have to, I think it starts with just resetting our expectations. And once the expectation is set that, hey, this software is provided to you at no cost. So if you want some help, be willing to pay for it. It opens the door to saying, hey, you know what? Here is the IRC. If there's a community help, you want that. But if you want help, uh, support or whatever, pay 150 bucks and we will do this. And this is something that we've worked with the Lubuntu community on. Where people have come in and they, if they, if they, they go to Lubuntu and say we want support and this doesn't happen, uh, the the release manager uh, works at AltaSpeed Technologies and he will hand those things up. Say there's nobody here. If there's somebody here in the community, we'll certainly handle that for you. If it's not, here's where you can send an email here so you can get help. It costs a little bit of money. It's a reduced cost than what it would ordinarily be if you just came as a client. But we'll help, try and help you out. Uh, and and it and it leads people with a end all be all. Hey, if you're relying on this for your business or for some critical purpose, we're going to allow you to to get that support. I think more places need to do that. But I think, again, it starts with just changing expectations. A couple of things on that. Inkscape has, which is interesting, you mentioned them. And I know you just used them as an example, but I went to their website when you said to, and they actually have the funded development model. You remember when you were saying last week, hey, I wish I could say, yeah. hey, I want this feature. And right. then you could, they actually have that here where you could yeah. say, hey, I want this feature. And then you send it in and you can have it funded to create that feature, which I thought is pretty cool. But they sure don't have anything for else. tech support, at least that I could easily see in the 10 seconds I was doing that while you were talking there. Uh, I think that it's one of those things where Jacob in our comments is here as a patron once again stated that, you know, there's probably an option here where it wouldn't be too difficult to set up a network to scan the largest tech support questions and issues that may come up. And then it provides similar answers that they found within the community, something along those lines. Because honestly, in Linux, and I don't know if this is with every distro, but a lot of times, if you come across an issue, you just search for it on the web, and then you're going to get 15 random websites, and you find the one that finally works for you. But there's nothing where you can go to actually just find that one specific case. 
And a lot of times in Linux, what happens is you're looking at those tech support forums that have the answer to a similar problem that you had, but it's from 10 years ago. So mm. the distros changed, the commands have changed, and you don't realize that until you type the command and it says command not found or that doesn't work, or you're looking at the command and go, I've never even seen that before. These type of things happen all the time. So I, I do think that these two areas, the tech support and bug reporting, to Michael's point, universal app here, I think is the answer. And when you look at the tech support of major tech companies with major funding, what do they have? When you go, you don't go just reach Apple. You don't go just reach Microsoft immediately unless you're this big giant company. You're going to go through a forum where you're going to say, it's going to say, type in your issue. Then it's going to try to intelligently find the solutions with its own database to say, is this your problem? Is this your problem? Did this fix it? Get more information. And eventually you may get to a part where you can open a ticket, but it's going to try to walk you through some troubleshooting steps intelligently before you get there. And I think the same answer from last week really is here. The question is, who's going to develop it, Noah? This, to a certain degree, this is what we're trying to do with Linux Delta, right? We're trying to, I, I, I got to a point uh, middle of last year where I, I sat down with our operations director and I said, listen, we're pay, I, I pay people to go out into the field. I pay people to come across the latest problems. Then I pay people to come back to the shop. I pay more people to sit at the shop and work on those problems until they come up with an answer. Then I pay the, the people in the back end to write up documentation so that the people in the field can solve all their problems. And then I sit down and answer I answered the same questions on a radio show. Why can't we just give that information directly to the people that go looking for it? And so we started, we stopped putting stuff in our internal company knowledge base and started putting stuff on linuxdelta.com. And, and so, uh, well, what's going to end up happening, I think, is that entire knowledge base is just going to get migrated over to, to linuxdelta.com when we have some time. But the, the idea is there is that it, once a problem is solved once, that documentation exists for anybody else to use it. So I think that's step one. But I agree with you uh, that there has to be an escalation process. There have We have to have some other options uh, for people to choose so that they can get help when they need it. I think that there is a lot of talented people out there who are looking for projects to help donate into improving the open source community. And I think we have stumbled upon two areas that if somebody would take this up, I think would improve mm -hmm. Linux and open source tremendously. And for the entire ecosystem, because I have no doubt that every distro out there is struggling with how do we keep up with the 50, no matter what system that they happen to choose out of the 80 out there, how do we keep up with bug reports? How do we keep up with all the tech support requests without killing the two to five developers that are working on this thing full time? Yeah. And we did um, mention, we, I don't think we mentioned the actual applications for bug reporting, but I, there are two that in the patrons chat we, that we were there pointed out that uh, Neil told, told us about Abert, which is A-B-R-T, I think is made by Red Hat. And there's also Apport, which is made by uh, Canonical. And so those, those kind of things do sort of exist. If we could kind of, as a community, do something like that, where we all embrace one of them or we just kind of, you know, take what we learned from those and make a whole new one if that's necessary. I don't know because uh, I'm not really familiar with those app, those applications that well. But if we did that kind of thing and then there was also a community effort to make a uh, collection of, you know, trying to do something like that for uh, tech, tech support. Wait, how could those exist and nobody's ever heard of them before? Have you heard of them, Noah? I've never heard of them. Yeah. Okay. So I, what I've, I've heard of. The weird thing about Appport is that I've heard of it only because of it's used as a, a reason to hate Canonical, which is really weird. But I've, that's, I've heard of it know. only because it pops up on my screen saying, do you want to report to Appport? And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but get off my screen. Yeah, they didn't do it. For, it wasn't it's 
to be fair, it's a, it exists, but it's not the greatest experience. But and, and the same thing in Abert is the same similar similar situation of. But it's more of like these kind of exist, and we can kind of take what we've learned from them and improve them. I actually was uh, Neil sent me a, a a thing about a thread of people saying, "Hey, should we get rid of Abert because it's not being used that much?" And it's like. Well, because people don't know it exists, and that's why it's not being used. So, right, we, I had no idea. Four years yeah. in Linux, never, never heard it. Yeah. So, I, and and hopefully this will be, you know, kind of a catalyst to say maybe the community or some distros can work together. The the key point here is that they all work together to do this because otherwise it would just create more and more fragmentation. So, or it's how you integrate it. If I type yeah. bug report right now on Pop OS, I get nothing. Nothing. Yes. If I type tech support in here. Let's see. I get, I'm going to guess here, nothing. So if, if these tools exist, you have to integrate them in such a way that people are going to be able to find them. I mean, yeah. I'm happy they exist now. I'm just now frustrated. Why is it? Well, I mean, those exist for anywhere? bug reports only. I don't think there is okay. one for tech support at all. So we need one of those too, but hopefully we need to have integration for things that exist and find things. If they don't exist, create them. But I, I do think there's a lot of potential for, so that this could be a very big game changer for a lot of people who are coming into Linux as the beginners. Uh, and documentation is great, but documentation is also, you know, you kind of have to wade through that in a level of like under, you have to already understand how diff- all these different wikis work or how, you know, these different doc systems work. And, and it, it just kind of, it's the same similar problem of if someone is just brand new, there's really no practical way for them to use those things. So if we just collectively... And a great way to monetize for developers. Yes, absolutely. That's another key is that this isn't something you just can throw out there for free for everybody. You can have the nice guide that walks you through, but past that, if you want a ticket that you want to open up, you want support, I think a lot of people would be willing to pay a reasonable price to at least get their tickets and things looked at seriously. And it may stop this distro hopping syndrome, which I know frustrates a lot of distros because... One week they maybe have a you know two hundred thousand users, and the next week they have a hundred thousand, and then it keeps switching because everybody distro hops because when they get frustrated they just leave yeah, because they know they're point. not going to get their issue answered. Yeah, I, th- I think that's another factor. It's like as a collection of collective of effort, but also as a value, the community will get this as a, so many different levels of value, and especially with like I know people want to pay for the support. I've had many people ask us, how do we? How do we even purchase a support package? Like, well, that's a great question. And maybe someday we'll have an answer for you. Hopefully this helps do that. Yep. So up next in the show is the gaming section. And everybody knows that I'm a super huge gamer. And therefore, that's why I'm taking over from Ryan this week. Because we're talking about Worm. uh, MMORPG. I don't like MMORPGs. But I'm very interested in Worm. Like I looked at the like the demonstration of the video talking about what it is. It's really cool because it's it's a sandbox MMO that is similar to like having it's like take the concept of WoW if you're never if you're not aware of what an MMO is. Uh, it's the concept of World of Warcraft, but put it into a pre-industrial and medieval times. It's a really fun concept, and it's also free to play, which is fantastic. So for all the non-nerds out there, an MMO stands for massively multiplayer, online, role-playing game. Well, that's the MMORPG part. And what this means is you play with people from all around the world. Now, I used to be addicted to an amazing MMO. It was the first one I ever played called Ultima Online. And I know a lot of you out in the community have heard me say that before, also played Ultima Online. And I was ridiculously addicted and couldn't wait to get home from whatever I was doing, school, work, or anything, to immediately log in and start, you know, 
killing other players and doing crazy stuff that you do in an open world RPG. But that's really the fun is you get into these worlds and you interact with random people and you could build castles. And this one being in a sandbox, you could build castles, you could go fighting, you could build stuff to sell people and become a rich landowner if you want. Really, it's all up to you. We don't have a lot of MMORPGs in the Linux arena and the gaming side. There are some that you can get working in Wine, like World of Warcraft and other stuff out there, but none that are really natively run on Linux. There's Albion Online is one of them, and now Worm, which has been around for a while, uh, but will run natively through your Linux client there. Something definitely to check out. It was released originally in 2012, but now it's kind of that free-to-play model. They do have premium accounts, but they're only like $4 a month there. You can try it out for free for something that you want to check out. But I love these style of games. Unfortunately, once I had kids and marriage and responsibilities, I can no longer play them because I have an addictive <laughs> personality with them. Right. But for everyone else, go enjoy WURM, not WORM online and let us know how you like it. Yeah, definitely. And this is actually one of those things where I'm not really MMO person. I never really got into them. But when I check this out, it looks really interesting. It looks like I look at it as MMO, but in like King Arthur times. Like that's that's a really cool idea. We are going through the Linux file system lately on Destination Linux. Each week, we're going to talk about a different directory. We start with the parent directory. That is root. We covered temps last week. You can go back. We invite you to do that and check out that episode. This week, we're talking about slash bin. Slash bin is where binaries are stored. That's why it's bin, short for binary. Now, there are a couple of different binary directories in Linux. It will kind of depend on which distribution you're using. So you'd have to look at your distribution's um, documentation. Inside of your profile, uh, inside of your Linux profile, where your user is, your environmental variables are defined. And that's essentially what the system says is, here's where all the stuff that this person should have access to. And, and some of the basic commands, at least in the Ubuntu distribution, are slow stored in slash bin. So this is where you're going to find things like echo, where you're going to find things like ls, grep, kill, move, all of these very basic commands. Some of the, the first commands you've probably ever learned on Linux are slor- stored in slash bin. Now, if you go into slash bin, cd slash bin, and, and run ls, uh, you'll find all of the executables are there. Now, you might say to yourself, well, no, I don't see Firefox in there. I don't see Thunderbird in there. I don't see this or that. Well, there's a number of different places on the Linux file system where binaries can be stored. Slash bin is just where most some of the most common ones are. But continue to stay tuned. Continue to check back week after week because we are going to get to every directory on, in, the, in the parent file system. And we'll cover that in a later, later episode. Nice. Our software spotlight this week is Natron. So Natron is an open source compositing software for VFX and motion graphics. Natron has a very powerful and also kind of complicated interface. It is based on a node engine. So if you're familiar with, uh, like, let's say for, let's just compare what the two are. So a compositing software is like, you know, After Effects, that kind of thing. And also there's one called Nuke. And Nuke is most known for its node-based system. And Natron is similar in how Nuke works with that node-based system. Now, it's not Node.js. Be clarify, it's just how the structure interface is built. But Natron has GPU and network rendering. It has curve and dope sheet editors. It has keying tools. It has 2D-based stuff. It even has some levels of 3D, but not exactly. So it's like 2.5D. Anyway. There's also multi-layer rotoscoping and a bunch of other stuff. Natron is a very, very cool application. I've used it for 
Destination Linux in the past doing some animations and stuff like that. I've also done it for graphical overlays for various different aspects of the show and also my own videos. Like I, I think Natron is a fantastic application you should check out. It is definitely a little bit complicated. I'm not going to lie to you. It is very complicated actually, but it is really, really cool. So check out the tutorials that are on their website because they are, they are definitely necessary, but Natron is a very, very impressive tool. And I would say one of the best options as an alternative to After Effects, especially for the open source world. It is a difficult tool to learn, but it's also a professional application. So it's kind of not designed to be, you know, an application you just pop up and move stuff around and boom, you've got it done. Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of contributions to this tool as well if you get invested in this project. To me, I kind of look at it as the Blender, although Blender is probably slightly easier to use at the beginning, but they have over 250 community plugins in addition that you can add all these features to. So when I say it's a professional right. application, you even though it's open source, it is something that I would see major companies utilizing and leveraging. I don't know if that's the case, but I could easily see it. And they have a very professional website, which makes me believe that in fact is the case that professional organizations utilize this tool. Yeah, Natron is very powerful and it's also, it, it you can do a lot of professional stuff. I've seen some examples of people using it to doing really cool stuff. When I said it was hard to use, I meant most, not necessarily it's Natron's fault. It's more of the node system is not really intuitive because when you want to create something, they have this thing called the writer and the, like the viewer. So you have to connect your nodes to a writer node to render it out and then connect it to the viewer node to see it in the display preview. So it's just kind of complicated in how the node system works. But if you are familiar with node-based systems, then it'll be very easy to use. I just wanted to be clear that it was kind of complicated just because of how the structure is designed. But the reason why they, they use the node implementation of the interface is because it's very powerful because you can like take different pieces and connect multiple nodes to each other to do different variations and all kinds of stuff. It's very cool in how it works, but it is different in how it works. So that's what I meant. So if I made it yep. seem like it's super hard, it's just because the node kind of structure is uh, confusing in the beginning. But once you get right. used to it, it's actually pretty awesome. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want more DL, become a patron like all these beautiful faces with us here and you get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show and you get the option if you want, which most people take this option, you don't have to, to troll Michael each and every episode live. That is one of the perks that we give you for becoming a patron and many people say that alone is worth the price of entry. But something that's definitely worth doing in addition to trolling Ryan and Noah is to get, go to the Destination Linux Network store and get some swag because we have all kinds of great stuff like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and much more. So be sure to go to DLN, the DLN store by going to destinationlinux.network slash store. Don't be a joy kill and join the DLN community right now. If you're no, you're missing out on a whole plethora of fun. We have the DLN discourse forum, with this, which is too legit to quit. If you'd rather talk in real time, if you'd rather talk in real time, no problem. We have a hookup with our DLN Telegram group. Finally, if your work has you snapping, take a chill pill and head to the DLN Discord service. No, that's not a drug reference. We're just telling you that we want you to come and hang out with us. I also love the fact that it's like, don't, if you're I too legit to one. quit, that's so good. 
If you're also too legit to quit the show, there's more content that's also content for you if you head over to DestinationLinux.network, where you'll find all sorts of open source goodness, from podcasts to YouTube channels and so much more. It's too legit to quit. Everyone, have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Quitters never prosper. Don't quit. (laughs) Don't quit. See you next week. Join the the Discord. We are so down with the young generation. Yeah, we are. Nailed it. Uh, All All right, right. patrons, you can turn on your mics, your videos, your whatevers, and talk to us. Your whatever. If you want to, you will understand. If you want to risk it. If you don't want to, we understand. I wouldn't want to hang out with us either. I mean, what would get to the younger generation (laughs) other than an MC Hammer reference? Really? (laughs) Right. Right. Isn't that MC Hammer? Or is that Vanilla Ice? It's one of the two. I don't know. <laughs> Might be Vanilla Ice. I don't know. I mean, he's he's pretty current. A lot of kids these days. He's, like he's legit. He didn't quit. <laughs> DuckDuckGo has the answer for me here. It's MC Hammer. There you go. Oh, it's on his Greatest Hits album. We need to get that for sure. <laughs>